What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 4040 Vision podcast. I'm your host, Coletta Dalla, and I'm joined today by a special guest, Robert Forto. How's it going, Robert? Good. How are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, so Robert is a dog musher, podcaster, and serial entrepreneur that lives in the wilds of Alaska with his pack of sled dogs. I probably should have led with that because that's very interesting. So let's let's jump right in. I mean, I, I want to talk to you about uh, your life as a uh, dog musher and, and all that. I know um, it's an incredible sport uh, up there in Alaska and Canada and, and that, that area of the world. So how does one get into dog sledding? You mentioned there was some confusion before the call. I thought you grew up in Alaska, but apparently you didn't. So how does someone that grew up outside of that area get into dog sledding? Interesting story. I was attending school at Portland State University in the early 90s. I thought I was going to be in a band and be the next Nirvana or Allison Chains or something like that. So I was living the the college life, if you will. And unfortunately, my grandfather passed away and he left me a little cabin up in northern Minnesota. This is back in wow. 1994 or so. So I pretty much packed up a U-Haul and moved west, east, I guess it was, from, from Portland. And it was a beautiful property. I didn't know anything at that time about dog mushing or really anything outside of just pet dogs. And I went to a movie called Iron Will. It was an old Disney movie that focused on the sport of dog sledding. And I fell in love with it. And before long, I had a couple of Siberian Huskies and I had the, the acreage and the trails and all of that to have sled dogs. But those first two really caught the bug, if you will. And I, I grew my team from there and started racing and and just doing everything dog sledding at that point. And, and that that went on for many years, ended up meeting my wife. Much later on in the early 2000s, we were living in Colorado at the time and getting older and having businesses at that point and so on and so forth. I knew this was something I wanted to do for a living. So fast forward about 10 years or so past then. Uh, at that time, we had about 30 dogs or so and we moved to Alaska. And this is truly the the heart of the, of the mushing community here. This is what they call the mushing capital of the world here in Willow, Alaska. And uh, we have 35 dogs right now, and we just love the life. So what other work do you do with dogs? And we can get back to the sledding, but I, you know, when I went on your website, I believe you do some behavioral work with dogs as well. So can you tell us more about that? Yes, I have been a professional dog trainer, if you will, since uh, the early 90s, about the same time I got into sled dogs. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've trained pretty much every breed imaginable out there in, in everything from basic obedience to advanced to service dogs to therapy, police dogs to whole nine yards. I, I am pretty doggy, if you will. So yeah, I've, I've definitely uh, dipped my toe in, into the dog world. And, and that is our business right now. We own and operate Alaska Dog Works up here in Alaska. How does one get into that? Did you see this as your career path coming up or did this something, was it kind of a, a byproduct of the sledding where you thought, well, I'm already training these dogs to run. Maybe I can train them in some other ways as well. If we go back a little bit, uh, I had mentioned I was in school at Portland State. I had 
intended to be a veterinarian. And I, I realized very quickly, I did not want to be in an office setting in any sort uh, growing up, of course. So I've, I had to figure out a way to to work with my passions and then, of course, still be able to, to earn a living that way. So I went to uh, a training academy in Columbus, Ohio, to become a certified dog trainer. This was about 94, 95, around that same time as everything, and and uh, was one of the first group of people that really became certified dog trainers. Now everybody in the world calls themselves a dog trainer, but uh, learned from some of the best back then, and uh, up, up to this date, we've probably trained 10,000 dogs and helped people all over the world. That's incredible. Uh I mean, my sister is a, uh, she has a master's in animal behavior. She took okay, a similar yep. path as you, uh, wanted to be a veterinarian. I think she realized at some point, um, she didn't like the hard sciences <laughs> quite as much. Uh, right. so she decided to pivot and she's working, you know, with dogs and, uh, she is a certified dog trainer. So hopefully she doesn't get slighted, uh, by <laughs> hearing your comment there, but, uh, I'll definitely be recommending, you know, your website and all that to her so she can check it out. Uh, she's currently working with, um, chimpanzees in the bay area oh, wow. some uh yeah so quite a quite a transition from dogs to uh, uh uh to chimpanzees but so for the for the dog sledding this is always something that's really interested me it's um it's obviously one of the oldest sports in the world so how does it uh how does how is the competition formatted is it just strictly a race can you tell us about some of the like the rules and regulations things we may not know as as outsiders you know, I really wanted to come on your podcast because you talk about sports history and sort of yeah. the development of sports. And I thought that was cool because, you know, obviously this is not football or basketball or soccer or anything like that. So I thought it would be interesting to to share with your guests sort of a new sport, if you will. And I think this really fits in the sport of dog sledding, like you said, goes back thousands of years. Obviously, they were using dogs to pull sleds back in, you know, thinking about um the Native American times in the in the early days of, of our country here in the United States, where they were using it for uh, similar to like we would use ox or, or horses or something like that to, to sure. pull gear, supplies and whatnot. And then what they did is they would uh, just like just like guys do, uh, we would uh, become very competitive and say, hey, I think my dogs are, can beat your dogs in a race. Let's get together on the weekends and and and. Uh, trade a little money, trade a little bit of uh, uh, supplies and see who can win this race. And, and I'm thinking about Alaska in, in particular. So all of the trappers and, and uh, you know, hunters and things would get their dogs together and race on the weekends and try to figure out who had the best dogs. And that's sort of how sprint mushing started. Sprint mushing is, is a much shorter version of dog sledding compared to Iditarod and all that. We can talk about that in a second. Is it like, so they uh... would get like the drag racing of, of dog sledding almost. Yeah. Sort of like the drag racing of dogs. Yes. Yeah, so, so they would do that. They would, you know, run around the trails and figure out who had the best, uh, the best dogs. And of course, bragging rights in, in the villages. And, and that became a huge sport here in Alaska, especially back in thinking about early 1900s, 1910, something like that. And then the, the races started to develop from there. Of course, they, they said, oh, I think, uh, you know, uh, Max and his dogs can beat John and his dogs. So let's be, bring them together and start bigger races. And I think it was around uh, 1905, 1910 or so, they started the All-Alaska Sweepstakes. It was up near Nome, Alaska. 
And uh, they started that race, and that went on for several years, uh, up until about the time of World War One, World War Two, And then the flu pandemic hit in, in 1918, I believe it was, and yeah. of course, a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of things stopped, very similar to how it, we went through it with COVID a couple of years ago. And then in 1925, they had a um, a diphtheria outbreak in Nome, Alaska, and they had to figure out how can we get medicine from Anchorage, Alaska, pretty close to where I'm living, up to a very remote uh, Nome, Alaska, and they figured out they can't use uh, railroad. They can't use boats because it was January, so everything was was uh, uh, frozen in. So they figured out, let's do it as a dog sled relay. So they they figured and out what's how the to, distance there. Sorry, what's the distance between uh, it was the, the about, two locations? Seven hundred ish miles or so. I think seven hundred and twenty five wow. miles. So what they did was is they shipped up this uh, antitoxin serum from Anchorage to Nenana, which is up near Fairbanks. And they started a true relay. So they started teams from Nome and teams from Nenana. And the goal was to meet them in the middle and hand off this medicine to help these sick kids up in Nome. And they, they eventually finished that relay. And, and you know, the story, the story became national, international news at that point. And that's the story of Balto and, and Togo. So a lot of people are very familiar with Balto from the Disney cartoons yeah, back in yeah. the day. And then Togo came out a few years later with uh with a much uh, uh newer version of the story and that became what is known now today as the serum run and that is that mm -hmm. run from from Ninana near Fairbanks up to Nome to save those sick kids and then fast forward about uh 50 years ish or so and to pay homage to that uh, life-saving relay they started the Iditarod which is a thousand mile race from Anchorage to Nome it's held every March and uh, you you literally start at the beginning of March and you work your way across Alaska in some of the most grueling conditions imaginable and that has become what is known as the Iditarod and that is sort of our pinnacle of the sport that's sort of our Super Bowl if you will mm -hmm. and uh, that that's the reason why we moved to Alaska I still have not ran Iditarod but that that's a story for maybe later on but yeah. that's sort of a very quick history of how you know the guys were betting on their dogs back in the early days in the 1800s or so to today with uh, with racing sled dogs competitively. That's incredible. I mean, it's it's amazing how uh, sport is so ingrained in like the human condition that we can turn anything into a competition, from you know yeah. transporting supplies to just finding a way to get around in some some difficult conditions to throwing a ball in a hoop. It's all essentially the same thing i can do this better than you can or i can do this faster than you can and we can put some money on it or some supplies or or whatever it is and, and make things a, a little more interesting uh so For sure. on on the iditarod i mean you said that the serum run was a relay is the iditarod a relay or is this more of just you know a solo show with you and your dogs and your supplies can you tell us a little more about the format of the iditarod yeah, the the uh, Iditarod currently is not a relay. It is a a one man, one woman uh, endeavor with your dogs. You can have up to sixteen dogs on your team at 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 any given point, and you're out there embracing the elements in some of the the toughest conditions. As I said, 
in in the United States for sure. It takes about 10 days right now to to finish that in, in the top place. So just think about the distance, a, a good measure for your listeners is about from Denver, Colorado to Minneapolis, Minnesota. So imagine running a race like that on something about three inches wide. That's a, the width of the <laughs> runners. And you're standing there at that distance in, 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 uh, in very interesting conditions, sometimes up to minus 30, minus 40 degrees below zero, and you're just working your way up. And interestingly, uh, back in the early days, in the 70s, they were doing this almost as a camping trip. Now they're just pretty much just going full bore, you know, pedal to the ground. And uh, they, they would do it in about two and a half, three weeks. So it'd take a heck of a lot longer back in the early 70s compared to today. But now the dogs are much faster. The gear is much better. Uh, people have figured out how to sleep a lot less. And uh, it, it has become a very intense race. And, and in terms of format, think about a very long marathon. And a lot of people that are listening are familiar with, with marathons where you're just out there in just a grueling uh, endeavor, if you will, but that just doing a marathon and, and, and the, a good way to think about it is you're doing a marathon two or three times a day, every day for about a week and a half. That's sort of what you're doing. Yeah. I was going to say, it's more of like a, an ultra marathon, like yeah. times 10. <laughs> yep, exactly. Okay. And, um, as far as the, one thing that got me thinking about is, is how do they, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming now they have GPS and things like that to make sure that to keep track of folks and make sure they're not, you know, cheating or doing anything, you know, uh, uh, against the rules. But in the early days, are there any stories of, of folks trying to cheat the system in one way or another, or, you know, find some underhanded way to get an advantage? Well, there's always been that at every sport. There's been a way to to figure out, hmm, can I do this a little bit faster or a little bit uh, differently and, and still win the race without getting caught? And and thankfully, in the Iditarod, they are they've been pretty strict from the early days about uh, uh, keeping competition relatively flat, meaning you know everybody is sort of on that same same terms. And you know, th there's been experiences where. They've had uh, struggles. One in particular is you're not allowed to stay in people's homes when you're in the villages. So, you know, you're pulling in and, and parking your dog team and, you know, hanging out at the cabin down the road. You have not a, been allowed to do that for many years because that's, that's seen as an unfair advantage because you, you can rest up, you can do what, you know, have a good meal, whatever. A lot of people think, oh man, you're out in the middle of nowhere. How is that an advantage. Well, it, it's easy to think if I know the person that owns that that cabin and you don't, you're going to be out there in, in the elements and I'm going to be kicking back with the wood stove. So that is a little bit of an advantage there. There has been a speculation about five or six years ago that one of the top mushers was using uh, what we would think of in human sports is like uh, performance enhancing drugs. Uh, that yeah. was uh, sort of a big struggle back then. He was eventually found um, uh, not guilty, if you will. I mean, he wasn't suspended or anything like that. But uh, there has been at least one incident of that. But otherwise, it's pretty tough to cheat when you're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they do use trackers similar to GPS, as you mentioned, on all the teams. And the trail is pretty pretty well marked uh, in terms of if you can think about just just how the layout is. So there hasn't been a lot of cheating, which is a which is a good thing. So what does a performance enhancing substance look like for, for a dog? What is that? 
very similar to, to what we would use. So, so thinking about if we would use something like growth hormone or testosterone or something like that, uh, they are, there's a whole list of banned substances for, for, for the dogs as well. Cause they take a lot of the same medicines that we do. That's why a lot of research, and I'm sure your sister would be very familiar with this. There's been a lot of research on dogs for people medicine because of that, you know, with antibiotics and so on and so forth, but, uh, very similar things, but also, uh, on the recovery side. So all of the substances that we would use to recover, whether it be um, painkillers or anti-inflammatories and that sort of thing, uh, the same type of drugs are, are banned in our sport as well. So the, the dogs and I assume the, the musher are, you know, drug tested before and after the event, like, you know, the Tour de France or something like that as well? Very similar. There has been occasions, and just recently they have allowed uh, cannabis use. Of course, now cannabis is is pretty much legal everywhere, so they have allowed that. For many years, that was banned, a, a banned substance for the human side. There has been at least one occasion where uh, one of the dog mushers has been accused of. I don't think they were found guilty or suspended of for using uh, uh, methamphetamines or speed of some type. Not uh, you know not not the hardcore street kind, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so there has been that because one of our biggest struggles, and you could think about why somebody would want to use a substance like that. One of the biggest struggles is sleep deprivation. And when you're going for a week or so uh, in the middle of nowhere, and it's a 24 hour cycle, as you mentioned, an ultra marathon is a good way to look at it. Uh, a lot of the top runners don't sleep. So they have to figure out how to, to keep, keep themselves upright, if you will, and so, you know, they, they have figured out ways to, to deal with, with sleep deprivation because that on the human side is the biggest struggle because when we stop to rest, we're not resting. The dogs are resting, but that's when our job really starts because it's our job as, as a dog musher or a dog driver to make sure that we're taking care of our team. So they're doing all of the work on the trail. And then of course we're doing all of the work in the checkpoint or when we stop for the night, of course we're, you know, feeding and, and caring for the dog. So our, our, our part of the, of the team really happens uh, when the dogs are resting. Yeah. That's, that's incredibly interesting. I, I didn't think about it like that, but it makes sense that, you know, they're doing the work, pulling the sled. And then, you know, once you camp or stop, you're the one that's going to be preparing their meals and uh, you know, checking for injuries and things like that. And of course, checking right. the equipment and, making sure it's, it's still good to go. And on the equipment side, uh, that's something that's, that's really interested in me as well Is how has the, the, the equipment where, whether it's the sled or the things that you're bringing along to make the trip easier, how has that evolved in the, the time that, that since the Iditarod started till, till today? Oh, it's, it's like night and day. And, and thinking about any other sport, if you think about uh, like uh, mountain bike racing back in the day, they were using uh, really heavy piece of junk, if you will, mountain bikes back in the day. And that's, that's sort of where we started with dog mushing. We were using handmade sleds made out of wood and, and sinew and that sort of stuff. And now we have some really extreme race car type sleds where we're using carbon fiber and, and, and all, car, all sorts of stuff like that. So the equipment has really evolved over the years. So now we, we're, we're pulling probably 50 pounds of gear compared to back in the day. We were just, it was just a sludge fest where we may have 150, 200 pounds of gear. So it's made, made the sport a lot faster in that 
since. But I think the biggest change is the is the dogs. Back then, we were using mm -hmm. sort of that prototypical husky-looking dog. When you think about stories like Balto or Togo, that that what everybody thinks of as a sled dog, that pointy-eared, wolf-looking dog, that was sort of that popular-looking dog back in the early days of Iditarod. Now they're a much sleeker, much different looking dog, more uh, short haired, more lean, more athletic, if you will. Uh, they're no longer the fat guy running down the trail in the marathon. Now they are the, you know, the, the typical like a Lance Armstrong looking type guy where they're just sleek and and all muscle and, and ready to go. And of course, those advancements, not only in gear and dogs have played a huge role part in in uh in the speed of our sport that's why we went from two and a half weeks back in the in those days to about uh, a week and a half today and it's just those changes in everything and how it's evolved yeah and what kind of of breeding process goes into the you know the into having these dogs is it like the kentucky derby type racing where it's like you're you're betting on genetics and is there kind of a a trade in these dogs of, of their genetic material, things like that. I'm, I'm really curious about how that whole process works out. Yeah. It's, it's very similar to horse racing. You know, the, 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 the lineage, if you will, or the, or the lines of the dogs are, are very, very closely held amongst the, the top mushers. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very common to have the same sire, the male dog be, uh, you know, the male for a bunch of other dogs as well. And the same with females. So it's very similar to that uh, in, in effect. And dogs can become very expensive. I, I just purchased a dog yeah, last week. Yeah, that was my week. next question. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it was a relatively inexpensive dog. It was a six-year-old. I paid $1,000 for her. But I have dogs in my kennel that I've paid $5,000 for, uh, for uh, you know, th those genes or those those traits, if you will. And, uh, it, you know, it just sort of builds from there. All of my dogs currently are from one or two lines of dogs. So they go back to one kennel. Uh, a, a lady by the name of Brenda Mackey, and for folks that are familiar with our sport, her uncle Lance Mackey is sort of our Lance Armstrong of dog mushing. He won the Iditarod four times in a row as, long, as well as the Yukon Quest, which is our other thousand mile race he won that four times in a row as well and a very similar story to lance or excuse me yeah his name is lance and the other guy's name's lance as well um very similar uh he passed away from cancer just about a year and a half ago uh so he is sort of the beacon of our sport if you will and um and that's that's where a lot of my dogs come from from that same line so so yeah it's a very closely held um I don't want to say secret, but you know what I mean. That that uh, that batch. Once you get a hold of them, mm -hmm. you don't want to let them go. And for so so, I'm sort of in that middle class of mushers, if you will. So you have the very elite folks at the top, you know, the very competitive mushers up there. Then you have that middle group where I would stand. And then of course you have a lot of the recreational mushers below us that, you know, they're using rescue dogs or they're using dogs that they get that are sort of rejects from other kennels. So they don't have the ability to use uh, those lines from other top mushers. So they, they just use what they can. And, and that's very similar to other sports. If you think about, you know, you have this, yeah. this kid on your team that goes to camps and he's the, you know, the all-star pitcher in little league. And he, you know, his, his, his parents have all the money and, you know, they, he has the best coaches and you have the, the kid that just shows up 
and uh, he, he's struggling to be, the, you know, one of the top players. So it's similar in all sports. Where the money goes is where, where the, uh, where the uh, competition rules, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the parallel I thought of was I know there's like NASCAR teams that don't have the funding to actually finish a race. They don't have the yep. funding to build a, a good enough car to finish the race, but they're just there to, to run a few laps and show their sponsor off on TV and, and make their money and then call it a day. So I, I imagine you can't just show up to the Iditarod just like, you know, maybe the Boston Marathon or something like that. Like you have to qualify and prove that you're able to handle these sort of things. So what is the qualification process for some of these these longer races? You mentioned that the Yukon run as well. What does that look like? How, what's that process? Yeah, the, the Yukon Quest, uh, in, West, in a format before COVID, was very similar to the Iditarod. It was a thousand mile race as well. They've sort of changed that a little bit because of COVID and dealing with um, travel restrictions back to Canada and all that. But aside, uh, the Iditarod, sort of a, as our pinnacle of the sport, does require qualifications. As you mentioned, you just can't sign up and show up to the starting line. Uh, we have to run 750 miles of races and have to have what they call a report card uh, sent to the Iditarod. And, and that is uh, the race officials and the veterinarians and all that get together and say, hey, is this guy qualified to do this because we're sending him out into the wilderness. So we have to do uh, those 750 miles and that includes two 300 mile races and then one at least 150 or 200 mile races uh, to, to do that. So there is a qualification process because unfortunately back in the day, people did just show up and, and uh, say, Here, here's my entry fee, I'm ready to run. And of course they, they struggled. But if you think about it, a 300-mile distance is much different than a 1,000-mile difference. If we use that um, analogy from Denver to Minneapolis as our gauge, that's a 1,000 miles. Well, Denver to, I don't know, less than Omaha, so only 300 miles from Denver is Omaha, Nebraska. There's still a heck of a lot of trail out there from Omaha to, to Minneapolis, so you can still find a heck of a lot of trouble out there. So that qualification process is good. It's not perfect, but there are um, there's still struggles along the way. So it's supposed to prepare you, but it does not prepare you. You know, you can go out and run a 5K to train for a marathon, but until you get on that marathon course, that 5K is is not going to prepare you for sure. Mm-hmm. What are the most common problems that folks would run into? I mean, obviously the the grueling conditions and all that stuff, but yeah, what are the the main issues that folks run into when when they're running this race? I think the biggest issue is just the remoteness, and people just aren't prepared for that as rookies going into our sport. You know, if if you're out on a training run and you know that you're going to to be home and sleep in your own bed at night, it's a heck of a lot easier than oh my goodness, I'm not going to be home for a week and a half. That uh, that's a really big change for you. So I think the remoteness. Uh, really hinders people. Of course, uh, the trail conditions itself on the Iditarod Trail in particular, there's really three sections. There's a very uh, intense section on that first third of the race where we're going over the Alaska Range, which is literally up and over some of the tallest mountains in the United States uh, on on a dog team. And then we have a very um, remote section in the middle, which is down the Yukon River. So it's just pretty much days upon days of running on one of the largest rivers in the United States. And then we come up on uh, the third section of the race where we're literally running on the sea ice for several miles. So 
in the middle of a frozen ocean. And if you did watch that movie Togo, uh, that is the section in the movie where he was really struggling with his dog team. It was out on that last third of the race. And there have been times where people have made it all the way to that last checkpoint, 25 miles from Nome, and their dog team just shuts down and they can't go any further. Their dogs say, hey, we're done, dude. We're not going any further. We're done. So they get, uh, you know, 950 miles from the finish. And it's truly that agony of defeat moment. And they just can't go. I know there's a story that uh, there was a guy several years ago whose dog team shut down. And the uh, the checkpoint is called safety. It's about 25 miles from Nome. And his dog team just said, you know what, dude, we're done. We're not going any further. And he tried and tried and tried and would they would not budge. So what he what he did is he just packed up his gear and just started walking. He said, I'm going to see if these dogs will follow me. And he just started walking down the trail and just, you know, just started huffing it. And before long, the dog said, hmm, where's our where's our leader? Where's our driver? And they eventually picked up and uh, and uh, caught up to him. And he jumped on the sled and ended up finishing the race. But he knew that he had to do something. Otherwise, they were going to get stuck there and really be bogged down. And uh, he ended up finishing the race, but yeah, it, it's the dogs that are making the decisions. It's not the uh, it's not the person or the musher. So if the dogs don't want to run, they're not going to run. That's that's such a fascinating aspect of it that you know, obviously it's you're you're relying on the dogs to get through the race, and they are the athletes in this regard. I mean, how much of the preparation? is working on the the psychology i guess you could say or the the mind state of the dogs versus you know the equipment and all that because obviously you could have the best equipment in the world but if your dogs don't want to run it's it's kind of worthless so how much of the preparation is just making sure that not only are you prepared but your dogs are prepared and how does that work i think i think that that's the most important aspect of it if you do not have that bond with your dogs you're not going to go anywhere and that that's true training uh, in, in any sport, if you don't have a, a very good support system, and, and in our case, we're sort of the pit boss. You talked about NASCAR. Uh, we're sort of the pit boss or, or uh, you know, the, the, the crew that makes the engine go. If we don't have that, that bond with our dogs or that relationship with our dogs, as I said, if they don't want to go, they're not going to go. So we spend a lot of time uh, with our dogs on and off the trail. Just as soon as I get off of this uh, recording, I'll be down in the kennel most of the day dealing with, you know, not only the chores, but also uh, that relationship that I have with them. And they, they know what's up. Uh, they, they know that, that I am the, I am the guy, if you will. And uh, they know that uh, they're just as much a part of the team as I am. So yeah, that, that psychological or that bond part of the team is, is huge. And how do you build that bond? Is it as, as simple as just having a good relationship with the dogs? How do you I mean, I'm sure by now there's a lot of instinct in these types of dogs that they're bred for this literally, but how is that bond built to be able to rely on them for, for that grueling of a race? Even if it's not a thousand mile race, even if it's a 300 mile race, how is that bond built? It's it's very similar to the same relationship you would have with your pet dog. You know, if your if your dog is hanging out with you when you're watching Monday night football and he's laying at your feet and he may be a gold retriever or a lab or whatever, and you get up to go to the kitchen to get a snack, immediately he'll perk up and say, "Hey, where are you going, bud?" And you know, if he he knows he knows what you're doing, he knows your 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 intricacies, your your routines, if you will, and he will build on that. And if you just 
kick back and look at your relationship with your own pet dog and just multiply that by a thousand. That's what we have with our dogs. It's that innate, in tuned sort of relationship that we have. We know what we're going to do well before we do it, and the dogs can read on that. And of course, they they do that to to their to their partners, to their teammates. It's that same bond they have with each other, and that's that's the essence of training for any sport. When you have that that bond together, not only the human dog connection, but also that dog to dog connection, they learn the intricacies of, the, of their teammates. They know that, uh, you know, this dog can run with this dog or this dog cannot run with that dog or this dog has this gait or this dog has this personality or, mm-hmm. you know, this male dog does not get along with other male dogs. So he has to run with a female and, you know, sort of that that whole team management part of it. So it's just those times together, those hours upon hours of training on the trails. Uh, we typically spend all winter just sort of out there on on our trails uh, just building up that relationship. And that's what training is all about. Yeah, it's incredible how it's just like any other team dynamic. You just have dogs instead of people because you need to manage the personalities. You need to manage the uh, maybe egos, so to speak, if, yep. if a male dog's not not so comfortable with other male dogs. that That's incredible. Uh, and you mentioned that you wanted to run the Iditarod at some point. Uh, what what do you need to do to do that? What What's holding you back? from from doing it uh probably two biggest issues are time and money uh time just being able to take that time off you know it's, it's an entire year of of just sort of that grueling routine day in and day out and and being a business owner it's tough to really be able to step away because i can't say hey boss can i take a month off and do this I, you know my business would be in shambles if i took a month off but uh it's it's time first and i think second it's money it's very expensive. It costs about $40,000 to run the Iditarod. It has a, I think a $3,500 entry fee. Uh, and, and pretty much all it is is to enter the race. Everything else is, is, uh, is on you. All of the, all of the travel and the food and the preparation and, you know, getting there and getting back and all that is still on. So it's about a $40,000 investment, which, which is quite a bit of money for a lot of people. And, and more than, more importantly than that, I think it's just, I have other things that I still want to do. Uh, I teach at the university. I teach dog mushing at two local universities here in Alaska. And of course, that happens dead in the middle of winter uh, because it's the same time when Iditarod's going on. So until mm-hmm. I am done with that contract, at least uh, in, in the next couple of years, uh, I want to focus on that. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not old enough yet to say I'm too old. I think the oldest rookie was 72 years old when he started. And oh, I'm 52 wow. right now, so it, I still have 20 years before I'm the oldest oldest guy to ever start the race. So I think I'm okay. You got plenty of time, and I'm sure the, yeah. the dogs keep you young. For the financial aspect, I mean, I, I assume there are folks who do this, you know, professionally, full-time. Do they have sponsorships? What what does that look like? Do the sleds look just like a, like a NASCAR kind of <laughs> car with, with sponsors all over it? How does all that, that financial aspect of it work? You hit the nail on the head with NASCAR, and I think a lot of people can can relate to that. It's very similar. You know, those top guys have the big sponsors, and the big sponsors in our sport back in the day were like dog food companies. Or I remember back in the day there were people that were sponsored by beer companies and and that sort of thing. And then places like Cabela's and Bass Pro and Lowe's, and you know, those are the big name sponsors that get the uh, the big name 
kennels but the others you know it's it's the mom and pops it's the uh you know the the local uh uh, brew pub down the road or the veterinary office or uh, a lot of people sponsor their dogs so they'll put on their website hey do you want to sponsor uh, max and then they'll they'll raise funds sort of crowdfunding for for sponsors so you know if, if I have that on on uh, on my sponsorship program you could sponsor one of my dogs for 50 or 100 bucks or something like that and just have that sort of micro sponsorships work very well but most people don't, just like in, in NASCAR or anything else, most people don't have those big sponsors. Uh, they're doing everything hand to mouth, if you will. So they're raising the funds and, you know, friends and family and the whole nine yards to, to, to raise that money. And uh, it, it's a, a special thing to have a big sponsor to be able to do it on your own. Uh, it's just, you know, there's just not enough wealth to go around, if you will, to, 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 to feed everybody. Yeah, and I'm sure you get access to all the top equipment and all that good stuff when you have yeah. these these big sponsors. So so it makes makes sense. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover uh, before we? Uh, wrap up? I think we, I think we covered a lot here on on uh, on the show. I'm I'm game for for any other questions you may have. It's it's a fascinating okay. sport, as I mentioned. It's it's a heck of a lot different than uh, football or basketball or soccer. I think, like I just said. I think it's very parallel to, to NASCAR or the Tour de France or something like that. So uh, I would encourage uh, all of your listeners to go check out those those couple of movies that are on Togo and Balto to kind of give you an idea of what the sport's like. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I started by watching another Disney movie called Iron Will. It came out in the early 90s. I think that's probably the best representation of our sport in terms of popular media or popular culture. I think that really shows what the sport's all about. And it's just a fascinating way to live. It truly is a lifestyle. It's not just a, uh, something that we do on the weekends. It's not like those five K's where I wake up on a Saturday morning and say, honey, I'm going to go run a five K. Uh, this <laughs> is something that, that we live and breathe to do every single day. And this is what takes up 24 hours of our day, every day, 365 days a year. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. it. It's a lifestyle, not not a sport right. or a hobby. Um, so where can folks uh, find your work? How can we support your work? Um, one thing that on your website that really caught my eye was that you train uh, dogs to help autistic kids. Um, so emotional support dogs, things like that. How do we support you and where can we find your work? Best place to find me is at Robert Forto. That's spelled F-O-R-T-O. I'm on all social media, and you can find me there and connect, uh, whether it be on your your favorite Facebook, Twitter, X, or whatever it's called now, TikTok. We're all there, and all of them will link back and forth. I do have a podcast called Dog Works Radio. I've been doing that since 2009. Uh, we talk all about dogs there. Uh, we just bought Mushing Magazine. Uh, it's the largest publication for our sport. We just bought that yesterday. I traveled up to Nome, Alaska. Thank you to, to buy that. So we are going to be on mushing.com. So we will be there very soon. But yeah, just look my name up and you will find me. And I would be happy to connect with any of your of your listeners and answer any questions that they have. Yeah, and your website is robertforto.com, correct? That'll get you there. And of course, there's links to everything else. Okay. Yeah, that was that was where I, f I found you, um, or at least I was able to do some research on you. So I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for educating me, educating our listeners. Um, as far as the 4040 Vision podcast goes, you guys know where to find us. Wherever you're listening, please leave us a review. Make sure to subscribe. And you can find us on all the major social media platforms at 4040 Vision Pod. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs>